Acts 1, Part 2, from the sermon series, Acts of the Holy Spirit, spoken by Pastor Peter Ahn. Good morning to everyone, and uh, actually, good afternoon to everyone. Uh, good afternoon to those in the uh, nursery and to everyone watching online. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's great for me to be back here. I had a few weeks off, and I know last Sunday, uh, Pastor, we like to call him doctor sometimes, David Hosang, he launched uh, this new series of ours, uh, the Book of Acts, uh, for the next year or so, we're going to dive deep into part two of Luke's, really his gospel. And this, uh, the part one of his gospel was a focus on the life and ministry of Jesus. Part two, the book of Acts, is the focus of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how he uses 12 misfits like you and me, and he changes and transforms and creates the greatest movement this world has ever seen, and that's the church. And so for the next year, if you join us, for the next year, we're gonna to try to go passage by passage, maybe take a few weeks per, uh, per chapter, and we're gonna learn how this Holy Spirit took a group of people like you and me, and he created this movement that even till this day, there's never been anything quite like it again. And so I hope that you'll join us for that. And, and Dr. David Hosang, basically, he took us through the first half of the first chapter, and uh, it's when Jesus was with his disciples, and he tells them, you cannot go out and do ministry. You got to sit here and you have to wait. You have to wait for the Holy Spirit to come and to fill you up, to baptize you. That's what he talked about. And David went on, he, he kind of shared deeper about what the Holy Spirit or who the Holy Spirit is. And uh, we, you learned last week, the Holy Spirit is your advocate. He's your counselor. The Holy Spirit is a speaker of truth. He is your guide to better help you to navigate through life. Who wouldn't want that a part of their lives? And so I hope that as you join us for this next year, not only will you just gain this understanding of how the Holy Spirit used the church, but you'll gain this robust theology of the Holy Spirit so that you wouldn't be afraid of the Holy Spirit, but rather you would engage and get to know the third person in the Godhead so that you can connect deeper with him. Jesus knew that he was not going to be with the disciples very long. In fact, after he gave those instructions, he ascended into heaven. And then what happened right after that? The disciples waited. They just waited. Now, there's nothing more that I hate in life than waiting. If, you, if I would ask you to do something or like just kind of ask you and you told me to wait, that's almost like cursing at me. It's like a derogatory statement. I don't do well with waiting. I, 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 I struggle to wait at a grocery store. It's really hard for me to wait at Costco's. I never go to Costco's on a Saturday because those lines are just ridiculous. I hate waiting in traffic. I mean, that's just... So hard just to sit there and wait. And there's nothing you can do to speed it up. You just have to sit there and wait. Waiting is hard. I hate waiting at the doctor's office. I always seem to wait there long. This week I took my, both my daughters to the dentist's office. I had an amazing experience there. I was waiting for them. They went there to get their teeth cleaned. And when Kayla was getting her teeth cleaned, I was just sitting with my oldest, Christina. And we were just kind of talking. I spoke to her a few words in Korean, and there was an older Korean woman that was sitting across from us, and I guess she was listening into our conversation. And so she comes to me, she goes, oh, so you're Korean? I said, yeah, I'm Korean. And she said, wow, she was, it's great to see such a healthy relationship between a brother and a sister. And I said, what? I said, what? I was so shocked. I said, oh, no, no, no. I said, uh, I'm, she's not my sister. This is my daughter. And she looked real shocked. And she goes, wow, you must have had her when you were really young. I said, yes, I was 15 years old when I had her. 
oh man, you know, I'll take those compliments any day. I mean, I'm in my mid-40s now. I'm just like, I was like, wow. And so Christina goes over to me. She goes, oh man, does she think I'm that old? <laughs> I said, no, stop stealing my thunder. It's because I'm that young. I look that young. That's why she thought we were siblings. But I still hated waiting for the doctor's off, at, at the doctor's office. It was just tough. It's a challenge. It's just hard. Uh, I, I don't like waiting for my wife to get ready sometimes. I have to sit there and just wait and wait and wait for her to get ready. And she always says, I'm better than other women. I'm better than other women, right? <laughs> I think waiting is something that we just don't do well in our culture. In fact, a lot of businesses are predicated on the fact of trying to sort of reduce the wait time for its customers. Most service-oriented businesses are like that. Do you know that at McDonald's, you don't have to wait in line to order a Big Mac anymore? Do you know you can get an app? on your phone and just order it and then go and just grab it, you can just eat there? Do you know Starbucks, you no longer have to wait in line to get a cup of coffee. You can just order it online with your app and just go there and just pick it up. I mean, there's no wait time for these things anymore. It's just crazy the kind of world in which you and I live in today. McDonald's would not succeed if you had to wait 30 minutes for your food every time you went there because they're, they're called fast food. Right? It has to happen fast. And so because we live in a culture today where waiting is something that we really don't know how to do, we don't like, many of us, we despise it, it's no wonder why we really stink at waiting on God. It's no wonder why for many of us we get really antsy and we, and we get anxious when we feel like God is making us wait and he's not answering certain prayers or certain things that we really need him to do in our lives. It's no wonder why for many of us we'll struggle with God in those moments and we really don't know what God's really up to and we don't know how to develop this beautiful spiritual discipline on waiting upon God. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, don't even think about going out there and ministering. You've got to wait upon the Holy Spirit. He doesn't give them an exact time on when this is going to happen, but he says you have to stay here and you have to wait upon the Holy Spirit. How do we wait upon the Holy Spirit? How do we wait upon God today? That's what I want to talk to you about today. You see, how you wait upon God is going to be critical in determining how you actually experience and meet God. If we can't learn to wait upon God, then you're often going to miss him. And I think a lot of us, we've missed them because we're not willing to wait. The waiting that the disciples did wasn't this passive kind of waiting. It was an extreme active wait that they did with God and with the Holy Spirit. And I think for a lot of us today, some of you, you might be waiting for God in some ways. You might be waiting for him to get married, to finally send you that person that you want to marry in your life. And you're waiting for that. And I totally get that, that you're in that place where you're waiting. Some of you are waiting for God to give you that job or that dream job that you've always wanted. And you feel like it's just not happening. And so the wait is really getting you upset. And you're, not wondering, and you're wondering what God is doing, why he isn't doing what you want him to do. For some of you, you're waiting for God to bless you and your family financially so that you can start swimming through your debt rather than drowning in it. Some of you who are married, you're waiting for God to give you your first child. And that's a wait that I know you're waiting. For some of you, maybe you're waiting for a while. Some of you are waiting for God to kind of help you during a very traumatic event in your life in the past. And you're kind of waiting for him to kind of heal you in a certain way so that you can just kind of move on in life. And I know for some of you, you're praying for some family members that you're hoping that they would come to know God. And for some of you, the prayer has been for years, maybe even decades. And you just feel like it's not happening that it's not happening and you're struggling with that a lot and you're wondering when is it going to happen, God? When are you going to do this? For some of you, you're praying that God will heal 
somebody in your family physically because they're suffering from an illness or maybe even a terminal illness. Is anyone in this room tired of waiting on God? Are you tired of waiting on God? Has it been too long for you? Make no mistake about this. If the disciples didn't wait upon the Holy Spirit and they just went out and started ministering, it would have been a disaster. And if you and I don't wait upon God and we just go out and do whatever we want to do, it will be disastrous for your life and my life. So what do we do? How do we wait upon God so that we can eventually be filled with the Holy Spirit the way the disciples did? That's what I'm going to talk to you about today. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 12 and following. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 and following. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. A Sabbath they walked from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present with Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, and please underline that phrase, constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his disciples. Just got to stop there for just one moment. Um, a couple, about a month ago or so, I spoke a sermon on sexism for our justice series. And, and one of the things I love about this is that uh, one of the key contributing factors that allowed, it, that allowed the early church to explode, according to Dr. Rodney Starks in his book, The Rise of Christianity, is that he says is that the reason why the church exploded, of course, is because of God and the spirit of God just moved. But one of the key mitigating factors of the explosion of the church in the first century is how women weren't just accepted in the church, but they held leadership positions in the church. Meaning women weren't just serving in the church, but they served alongside in leadership with men in the church. And he said that's one of the reasons because the church was the only institution in the world during that time where women not only were accepted, but they were actually leading the church alongside of men. And we find that even from the beginning days, even before the church church even started, that women were sharing in prayer with men, that they were a part of this, in this fellowship with men, and birthing this early church. And we see it right here. In verse 15, it says, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received from the, his wickedness, Judas brought a field there. He fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the, that field in their language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Bar Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Lord, it's not easy to wait on you. And I know that it wasn't easy for the disciples to wait upon you as well. 
Lord, would you teach us to cultivate the spiritual discipline of waiting upon you so that we can learn to have deeper faith. God, I pray that as we look at this passage and as we look at an event that happened 2,000 years ago, God, that this passage would come alive and it would speak into the depth of our hearts and our souls today. So I pray, God, that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, I pray, God, that it would be truly be pleasing unto you. And it's in your name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. All right, so how did the Holy Spirit wait in such a way where they were able to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The first thing we learn from this passage is that they persistently prayed. They persistently prayed. Look at verse 14. It says, they all joined together constantly in prayer. And underline that phrase, constantly in prayer, or highlight it on your app, along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Prayer is a major theme in Acts. In fact, it appears 31 times in Acts. It's a major theme. And out of the 28 chapters in Acts, 20 of the 28 chapters has prayer in it. The disciples came together and they prayed persistently together, meaning prayer wasn't a low priority for them. Prayer was a very high priority for the disciples and the early church. Persistence in their prayer was key, right? It's not surprising that while the disciples waited for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they kind of came together and they constantly and they persistently prayed together. Now, even in our own lives, as you wait upon God, is that a practice that you adapt for your own self? Do you persistently pray to God while you wait upon him, while you're waiting upon him to do certain things, right? The word uh, constant here, constant in prayer, when you translate that word, it means persistence. It means resolute. It means never to give up, to just keep moving forward, pushing, building this sense of this endurance muscle in your spiritual, in your spiritual life so that you can just continue to pray and connect with God. Have you ever met somebody who was persistent? Have you ever met somebody who never took no for an answer? Have you ever met people like that? They're quite incredible. When I graduated college, I attended a church, and uh, we met a pastor there. And this pastor was a very, 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 very average-looking man. All right? (laughs) I mean, very, very average-looking. All right? Slightly overweight. He married a woman that, in our opinion, looked like a model. Right? And, you know, I'm in my early 20s. A bunch of us were in our early 20s. So we just went over to him, trying to glean on his wisdom. <laughs> we said, listen, how did you get a woman like that? And you know what he said? He said, I didn't take no for an answer. She turned me down several times, several dozen times. I didn't take no for an answer. And, she, and this is what he said. He said, I eventually, that I wore down that no to a yes. Now, guys, I'm not giving you any dating advice on what to do, because <laughs> when a woman says no, it's no, all right? But this dude was persistent. I mean, just kept, she kept saying no, kept going at it, kept going at it, kept going at it, and eventually he wore her down, and she said yes, and they got married, and they're happily married, right? And that's persistence. Even in your prayers, as you're waiting upon God, because isn't it, there aren't there moments when you actually get discouraged in your prayers? Has anyone ever been discouraged by praying to God? I have plenty of times. And you know what the danger is for many of us? The danger for many of us is that the prayer, sometimes we have more faith in that prayer than we do in God. That's the danger. And so when you and I sort of adapt this way of persistently praying, because even Jesus tells his disciples to do this in Luke 18. In Luke 18, 1, he tells his disciples, he says, hey, guys, 
you should always pray and not give up. And then he goes into the parable of talking about the persistent widow. And he's saying that you and I have to keep praying, keep consistently praying to him. Why does God want you to persistently pray? Why doesn't he answer a lot of your prayer requests in the time frame that you may want him to answer it in? You want to know why he doesn't do it? Because you're not ready to receive it. You're just not ready to receive it. You see, what prayer does and what this persistence prayer does is that it allows you to align your heart with God's. Because when you pray to God, it's more than you just praying for certain requests. I hope you know that. But when you persistently pray, when the disciples were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, they were persistently praying. They weren't just uh, reading off a list. But what they were doing was that they were communing with God. They were connecting deeper with him. And as they got to know the throb of God's heart, their hearts began to align with his. And for a lot of us, the reason why God is not going to answer your prayers right now at this moment is because your heart is not ready to receive it. Because somehow you have more faith in that prayer being answered than you do in a God who can answer that prayer for you. And that is a dangerous place for you and I to be today. And so will you persistently pray? Will you persistently pray and get to know this God who loves you and cares for you? Will you entrust your life upon him? And I know sometimes we're waiting and you want God to do certain things in your life. But will you just wait and just trust in God and not give up the way Jesus instructed his disciples? Persistent prayer is not just waiting for God to say yes, but it's really to discover God's heart and so that your heart can align with his. That's what persistent prayer is. You see, maybe the reason why you don't have that dream job right now is because you can't even be thankful for the one that you have right now. Maybe that's why God hasn't answered your prayer. So he's saying, keep praying. Let me do a work in your heart. Maybe because one of the reasons why you aren't married right now is maybe because you see marriage as you being saved in some way. That you think this man or this woman is going to save you. That you associate it as like a salvation level. And that's not what marriage is. In fact, married couples will tell you it's not that. And maybe God wants you to see marriage as an opportunity for you to grow. And as iron sharpens iron, you can become more like him as you learn to love a spouse that sometimes you love so easily. But sometimes, wow, it can be hard. It can be really hard to love them. And God will teach you an amazing thing. That when you can get to a place when you can love somebody that is unlovable, you've tapped into agape, which is his love, his unconditional love. Maybe God is making you wait because your heart isn't aligned with his right now. And while you wait, he wants you to persistently pray. Or maybe God has said no. And you just have to embrace the fact that God said no to your prayers. Now, that's not easy because sometimes we lose faith in God. And perhaps maybe we lose faith because we felt like maybe God has said no. Could you imagine if God said yes to every prayer that you prayed? Could you imagine where your life would be right now? There would be chaos. There really would. Uh, I don't know how many of you have watched the movie. A long time ago it came out starring Jim Carrey. It's called Bruce Almighty. Yes. It's a great movie. And in this movie, Bruce had, uh, he became God for a few days. And he was given the responsibility of God. Morgan Freeman plays God. 
And, uh, and he says, all right, well, then here you go. You be God for a few days. And he had the responsibility of being God. I want you to check out this clip and see what happens if God would say yes to all of our prayers. Check it out. You've got prayers. Welcome to the Revelation Superhighway. We bless. No mess. Downloading now. It's good. It's good. This is going to take a while. Oh. 1,527,503 prayer requests. filthy something gets. You can always clean it right up. There were so many. I just gave them all what they wanted. Yeah. But since when does anyone have a clue about what they want? People want me to do everything for them. What they don't realize is they have the power. You want to see a miracle, son? Be the miracle. Hmm. I love the part when the guy threw a, a bottle through the window and he says, I only won $17 from the lotto. Because <laughs> he answered, how many people prayed that they would win the lotto? Um, what makes you think you know what you really want? Don't you think God knows what's best for you because he created you? Can you just trust in that and persistently pray while you wait for him? And maybe he says no. And how do you know if he says no? Because that's hard, isn't it? To know if he actually said no. The key thing about persistent prayer is that you do it together. All right, is that you do it together. And I think one of the best ways in how I've learned that God said no to certain prayers in my life is that I pray together with some people in my life and they help me to discern that I think God said no, Peter. And you just have to be okay with that reality. You see, the word together, and it's a key word here in verse 14, is that they, together they constantly pray. That word means with one mind or passion. There's something beautiful that happens when two or more are gathered in God's name with one mind and one passion. Something beautiful happens. Persistence in prayer doesn't mean that you go off by yourself and you create this little silo of your individual prayers with God. It actually means that you get together with a few people and you pray together with one mind, with one passion. When we do that, something beautiful can happen. So would you persistently pray? 
will you be open to persistently praying together? Because I think when, when we come together and we pray together with one mind and passion for each other's requests and for the things that we need, things that we're hoping God will lead us to, something beautiful can happen through it. The disciples were waiting upon the Holy Spirit. What did they do? They persistently prayed together. Are you waiting on God today? Do you feel like you've been waiting for a while? Well, will you together with some other folks, will you persistently pray with them? The second thing that the disciples did while they waited for the Holy Spirit was that they confronted their pain of betrayal. They confronted their pain of betrayal. This is pretty deep, so stay with me on this. Look at verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field there. He fell headlong. His body burst open and his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they call that field in their language a keldama, that is field of blood. Now Peter views Judas' betrayal as a fulfillment of scripture. He believes that, he does. But it still doesn't take away the pain that Peter and the disciples had to confront and deal with the pain of betrayal that Judas had done. Peter said that Judas was someone, in verse 17, who was one of our number and he shared in our ministry. Can you imagine walking with somebody, having a relationship with somebody for three years, coming together, trying to do your best to live for God and live for Jesus, and then one of them betrays Jesus, and the very man that you love and care for was crucified because of his betrayal. Could you imagine what they had to go through as a result of it as well? And so they, not, they had to confront it, and they confronted it, but they also were able to get past it, and that's key. For some of us in this room, because we've gone through some betrayal at an early age, we didn't have the proper faculties to confront the pain of betrayal. We didn't, we were too young to be able to navigate through that. So as we're older now, perhaps maybe now God is encouraging you and I to confront certain people in our lives whom we've loved and trusted because betrayal can only happen if you love and trust somebody. It can't happen if you don't love that person. They can never betray you because you don't love them, you don't trust them. But maybe it's time to confront it and not just confront it but allow God to heal you from it so that you can move forward in your life and so that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. The disciples had to, while they waited, they had to deal even with that, right? And they did not only confront it, but they really moved beyond it. And I do believe today that God, as you confront your pain of betrayal, that he wants you to move beyond it. Really the genesis of, of, the, of, the, of the betrayal or that pain that lingers on is really the shame that it carries. A lot of us, if we've been betrayed, we, we experience the shame of that. And it's painful when we do. Right? Because when that shame is there, then what we start to sense is that we start to sense anger, bitterness. Because whenever you feel shame, don't you get angry and bitter about it? Whoever shames you, oftentimes we get very bitter and angry towards them. All right? And for the disciples, they experienced the shame. Because what did it say in verse 19? It says, everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. What did they hear about? They heard about what Judas did to Jesus. He said, everyone in Jerusalem. Could you just imagine what those conversations were like? as Peter was talking about Jesus being God. Could you imagine what some of the Jews would say to him? Peter, are you saying that Jesus was God? Well, doesn't God know what's going to happen? Why would God choose a guy like Judas to betray him? Don't you think he made a mistake? So your Jesus is not God. 
the shame that they had to deal with and they had to confront that because within that, what really stems from the shame is oftentimes our anger and our bitterness. And please hear me on this, hear me on this. Before the Holy Spirit came and baptized the disciples in the way in which he did, we're gonna see that next week, they had to deal with this bitterness. They had to deal with the shame that they experienced through Judas and his life. And today, if you want to live your life in a place where maybe God is making you wait, and if you want to be in a place where you are in concert with the Holy Spirit, where you're getting to know the third person that God had, and you're experiencing him filling you up in his presence, he cannot do that if you're still bitter. He cannot do that if you still have this deep resentment because what happens with bitterness is that it begins to form and it grows and it it starts to go and grow into your other spiritual parts of your body and then it becomes like this cancer that spreads. It starts starts out at stage one and if you catch it early, God bless you. But if it gets to stage five, you're in a very, very dark and precarious place. You gotta let go of that bitterness and the only way you can let go, and and I'm sorry to say, the only way you can do that is you enter into a path of forgiveness. You let the people go. They still have to face God for what they've done. But you don't let what they've done destroy your life. Because you know what cancer does if you're a doctor. It spreads. It has the capacity, if it's not treated, to spread through every organ in your body. Ephesians 4, Paul says, do not let the sun go down in your anger and in your bitterness because otherwise you give the devil a foothold of your life. So how can the Holy Spirit take full authority over your life today? How could you let it be your God and your counselor? How could you allow the Holy Spirit to fill you if you still have bitterness? It's not easy to let go. I get it. It's a process. I get it. But you got to let yourself go of it. And hopefully you take comfort in the fact of knowing that the disciples and Jesus understands the depth of the betrayal that you've been through in your life. Romans 8, 28 says, In all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If you believe in Romans 8, 28, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, then betrayal, bitterness is something that you and I have to let go of. Because God can work even that act of betrayal into something beautiful. Because it did for Jesus, he's sitting at God's right hand. He's sitting at God's right hand as a result of it. God can redeem those acts of betrayal but you gotta be willing to confront it and you're gonna have to be willing to enter into this process of forgiving the person. It doesn't make what they've done to you right, but what it does, it lets you go of the bitterness so that you can just move forward in your life. You can still feel the pain, but you don't have to have that resentment anymore. And I think one of the things that really destroys us and destroys our spiritual lives and destroys a lot of our relationships today is all a residue of this deep shame that oftentimes we've experienced through betrayal and because of that shame we've been so bitter as a result of it and i guess god is asking all of us today are you willing to forgive and let go of that bitterness because perhaps maybe that bitterness has become an idol in your life many years ago uh, i do this thing uh, on an annual basis i've taken a few years off but it's a discipleship group for six months within our church. And in those six months, um, we try to do our best in, in growing and learning uh, and be more like God. And uh, in one of the, the times, and every, every, uh, every year that I do this, I, I always try to spend at least one or maybe two lessons on forgiveness. Because I think it's one of the hardest. I mean, we seek God's forgiveness for our own lives. But I think we're just horrible at administering forgiveness 
on people's lives. And so I spent quite a bit of time talking about forgiveness. And I remember as I was sharing about this and talking about it, I saw there was a young sister that was really wrestling with this. She was really wrestling. And I didn't want to probe because, again, I didn't want to, you know, just ask. But she actually was very uh, courageous enough to share with us why she's really struggling with this. And she shared that when she was in college, she had premarital sex and she got pregnant. And her boyfriend at that time said to her, they said, if you get an abortion, I will marry you. And so because she wanted to get married to this guy, she did. And you, and you can only imagine the guilt that she felt when she did get this abortion. And um, as soon as she got it, he broke up with her. And so she felt such anger and bitterness and just felt like this guy is unforgivable. And she just said, and in her courage, she said, I don't think I can forgive this person. And I was not at that place at that moment of saying, but you must. I just, that would be really insensitive. We tried to hear her out. And a few weeks later, uh, she comes into, into our office, and it's like she's got a whole different countenance about her. She didn't tell us at all. But God had given her the strength to contact this guy, and then they, she drove a few hours to go meet with him. And she sat there, and she said it was just an opportunity for her to pour her heart out to this guy who is now married and just share with him what she felt and what he did to her. He apologized, asked her to forgive her, and in an amazing, amazing way. And I know this doesn't happen all the time, so I, know, I hope you don't think this happens to everyone. But in that amazing exchange, she was able to forgive this man. And she came to class like just full of life, sharing with us what happened and experiencing the joy that she has now in God and in the Holy Spirit because she can now live the life that God has called her to live and she no longer has to be held back with the shackles of bitterness that often killed and plagued her life. Will you let go of the bitterness today? Do you feel like you've been betrayed? You can still feel the pain, but will you let God take that bitterness away? Will you forgive the people who have hurt you, whom you've deeply, deeply trusted? How did the disciples get, experience the Holy Spirit later on? They persistently prayed together, but they also confronted and dealt with the pain of betrayal. And I think if any of us in this room have loved anyone, You've experienced betrayal before. So who do you need to forgive? What bitterness do you need to let go of today? The very last thing we learn in the story, um, a very important part of uh, why we wait upon God, the disciples waited upon to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The third thing they did was that they actively obeyed God. This is key, active obedience to God. Now, you and I obey God not so that we can be accepted. We obey God because we've already been accepted, and therefore God expects you and I to obey him, all right? It is an invitation. Verse 20, verse 20. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barabbas, Barsabbas, I'm sorry, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. What is the point of this passage? All right, you gotta read a little bit between the lines. But the point of this passage is this. When we don't actively obey God, 
he's going to replace you with someone else. Judas wasn't actively obeying Jesus. He was not. He was passively obeying him. What does it mean to passively obey God? We've all done this before. To passively obey God means that you do for God before you're actually with him. Isn't it easy for you to just keep doing things for God? You just keep doing things from Judas was with Jesus for three years. He was the treasurer, right? He did everything that Jesus wanted to do. They, they went to every place together. And yet he still betrayed him. He, was, he did things for him, but he was never with him. You see, active obedience is when you know that you being with God is more important or just as important as you doing for him. So therefore, you will never do for God until you are with him first. Does that make sense? That's what active obedience is. God wants you to learn to actively obey him, meaning that you understand the importance of being with him before you do for him. Because when you're not with him and you do only for him, you open yourself up to so much temptation and so much sins that might eventually lead you to betray Jesus at its worst. But at its best, you will definitely fall into a sinful pattern in your life and in my life. And when we fall into this passive obedience, God will replace us because Judas was replaced. Matthias took his place. Matthias, uh, we don't know much about him. It's the first and last time he's mentioned here in Acts. But what we do know from scholars is that he, he was a missionary to Ethiopia and he was a faithful man of God. He was a faithful man of God. We have to be so careful today that we cannot substitute our doing for God as being with him that we have to make sure that we don't do for him until we are first with him. It's so hard today to actually have people be with you, isn't it? Like my kids, many times we'll be out, we'll hang out or something, and they'll just be on their phones. And then I'll just look at them and I say, hey, are you with me? And then sometimes I do it, and you know, I'm just being honest. And then they'll say, dad, are you with me? <laughs> I'm like, sorry, I put it down. It's so easy not to, you could be with somebody, but you're not really with them. Does that make sense? You see, the point of persistence prayer, and, and that's how you can be with God, is that as you, as you persistently pray, you get to know God more because it's really a dangerous place for you to be. You're in a very precarious place when you're doing for God and when you don't really know him. Judas fell into that trap where he was doing so much for Jesus, but he didn't really know him because he wasn't with him. Active obedience means that you understand the importance of being with God before you do for him. And the question is, are you waiting for God today? Are you with him? Are you with him? Are you experiencing God in a deep way? I love what the apostles are doing here because they're persistently praying. But also as they're persistently praying, they're also in the word of God. And as they were in the Bible and as they were studying the scriptures, as they were connecting with God through the word, they, Peter realized, he said, wait a minute, Jesus chose 11 of us, 12 of us, and there's only 11. We got to do something about this. And it was through his active obedience that he realized that they had to pick a 12 to make the 12 a unit again and to continue to bless what Jesus has created. And so he says, we got to pick. And they cast the lots and eventually it fell on Matthias. God wants you more. He just wants you more than what you could ever do for him. Amen. And because we're such doers, it's hard for us to receive this. It's hard for us to be convinced that God would rather just be with us rather than us doing things for him, that he would choose to be with us before we do anything for him. 
This is so sad because you find that there's so much going on today in the church where pastors and priests and leaders are just falling. Like, you hear it all the time. And I hope that you don't get discouraged about the church because the church still, I believe, is the hope for the world. But I think what happens is that even as clergy and as pastors, we fall into this trap of just passively obeying God, that we just keep doing for him, but we're not with him. And you hear stories about Catholic priests, and, and there are so many holy pa- Catholic priests out there, but you hear stories where some of these Catholic priests have sexually abused little children and how people in the Vatican knew about that stuff, and they try to cover it up. And it's just discouraging when you hear about that. But what you realize is that these people all love God. They love God so much that they chose to live a life of celibacy. That's how much they love God. But somewhere between their professional careers as being a clergy, as being a priest, they decided to just do for God and not be with him. And as a result of that, darkness started creeping in, and they started to see little children as sexual objects so that their sexual desires could be gratified. Passive obedience. How did Judas, after being with Jesus for three years, betray Jesus himself? Passive obedience. He just did for God, but he wasn't with God. The thing that I took the hardest was about a month ago, Bill Hybels, who is, man, I mean, I've learned so much from that man. I've attended so many of his conferences, read all of his leadership books. I even was thankful to have lunch with him and two other pastors a couple years ago when our church won an award at the summit at his conference. And um, I've learned so much from that man. And uh, it broke my heart to just hear these stories after stories after stories of women coming forward in his church saying that they have been sexually abused by this man who I have truly respected for so long. Bill Hybels has impacted millions of pastors around the world. This man loves Jesus Christ. He wouldn't have done what he did if he didn't love Jesus. But at some point in his life, we don't know when, but he fell in love with passive obedience and he just did for God and he wasn't with him anymore. And these are all allegations, but these allegations have been so shattering to the church that their senior leadership have all stepped down from the church because of what happened. Bill has been out of ministry since February. He stepped down when it first came out, these allegations. It's hard. It's hard being a leader for God in the church because one of our greatest temptations is that we just want to passively obey God, just do for him and not be with him. Last month, there's a pastor a young pastor in his early 30s in California, Northern California, and he committed suicide, leaving behind a beautiful wife and two beautiful children. The wife shared that he was clinically depressed, so much so that he took his life. Pastors are three times more likely to be clinically depressed than you. Five to seven percent of Americans today are depressed, clinically depressed. For pastors, it's 15 to 17 percent. As a result, 1,700 pastors quit the ministry every month. Why? Because I think at some point or another, we have passively obeyed God and we haven't actively obeyed him. That we think doing for him is just as important or more important than being with him. Are you waiting for God today? Are you waiting for him to do certain things in your life? Will you be with him? And one of the best ways that I've been able to be with him is pray 
together with some people, study the scriptures together. But the key way is that I've always invited one or two people in my life and I've invited them into my dark little world. None of you in this room, you're, none of you are Jesus. You're not perfect, dude. The challenge is, will you invite somebody into your dark little world and let them be a part of that? I don't think I would be standing here right now if I didn't have these people in my life because Jesus says when two or more are gathered, I will truly be there when I can expose to them everything in Jesus, in front of Jesus and them, and that they can share and they can journey with me in my darkness so that the devil doesn't take hold of it only. Will you invite somebody into your dark little world to help you through all of this? Because if we can't, then you know what begins to happen? That dark little world becomes so big and it becomes more powerful in your life, then you don't no longer want to be with God. You just want to do for him. And that's what happens to a lot of Christian leaders. Some of the leaders that fall is that they just get so caught up in doing for God, but they're not with him. Waiting for God is difficult. It really is. Waiting for the disciples. I mean, they want to do ministry. They just saw Jesus ascend into heaven. Could you imagine that, just seeing that? You just want to go out and start ministry, right? I mean, just like we just saw Jesus be taken up to heaven. He was raised from the dead. I want to go and I want to just start ministry, let people know about this. But Jesus says, wait, wait, wait for the Holy Spirit. They weren't just playing Fortnite. That's not how they were waiting. They were persistently praying. They had to confront some of their own bitterness and some of those acts of betrayal that they've even experienced, the residue that they've experienced from Judas, right? And they understood what it meant to actively obey God, that being with God is so so greater and more important than just doing for him. Because if you're doing for him is done without you being with him, you're a Pharisee. You're a Pharisee. One of my uh, highlights of the summer was that I was able to spend a week at Cooperstown, New York, and that's where the Baseball Hall of Fame is. Parents, if you have a boy or a girl that likes to play baseball, I do want to encourage you to make sure that when they turn 12, send them over to Cooperstown. It is just, it's like Disneyland for baseball people. They have a 12-week tournament where every week, it's a week long, so they have 12 different, they have 12 new tournaments for 12 weeks where 105 teams around the country come and they compete against each other, 12-year-olds. And so, you know, we were there and Christian stayed with his team. They slept in the complex, so he was not even allowed to come out and hang out with us. We just watched him play twice a day. It was awesome. And my wife and I, we stayed about 12 miles away from the campus there, and we stayed at a little cottage, a dairy farm cottage, tiny little place, and there was no TV, there was no internet. We were like, oh, what are we going to do here? This place is horrible. You know, we didn't know what to do with ourselves. But after like the first day of detox from, from all the craziness of our life, uh, and we were able to unplug, it was so good. We loved it. We took so many walks up and down the air. We did at least two, two walks a day, and we'd walk up and down this road. It was just so nice. And we took our dog with us. He was in heaven. He was in paradise. And so it was just the three of us, and we went on these walks back and forth. And it's rural areas, so I didn't have to put them on a leash. There's no cars. Nobody lives around there. It's a dairy farm. And so it was just such a wonderful place. But what I tried to do in the mornings by myself is that I went, I went away for like these prayer walks. And I'm a city guy through and through. If you kind of know me, I'm a little bit of a diva. All right? I like nice hotels and things like that. And I like just man-made stuff. But uh, these days, I don't know what it is, but man, nature just speaks to my soul. 
I mean, I when I see green grass, I mean, it just speaks and ministers to me. I, I experience God through nature. And so I'm just walking in the morning, and this is, look at this beautiful, I, I picture it does not do justice, but I'm seeing this. I'm just like, I cannot believe how green everything is. Look at the trees. I mean, just trees, grass, just it does something to me. And so I'm experiencing like God's love and I'm just, I feel like God's ministering to me as I just kind of stare at this in silence with my dog and, uh, and just experiencing it. And at that moment, because I, you know, this is just, this is how I'm programmed. When I sense God, I always say to God, God, what do you want me to do for you? I'll do anything for you. What do you want me to do? And in that moment, God said to me, he said, Peter, more than you ever doing for me, what I really want is I just want to be with you. Will you just let me be with you? And will you just really center your life around that? Because then you doing for me will just kind of take care of itself. I said, I got the message, God, absolutely. I'll do that. I'll do my best to be with you. And then I just kept looking at this over and over. And I just said, God, it's just amazing what your hand can create. This is so beautiful. It is so beautiful. And at that moment, I had another moment where I got a chance to hear from God. And he said, as beautiful as this is, Peter, you need to know you're more beautiful because you're my greatest creation. And that really ministered to me because I may be the pastor of this church, but I have a dark world that I live in at times. I fall just like you. I make mistakes in my marriage and relationships. And to hear that in the midst of that, that I'm more beautiful than that, it was all I needed to hear. And I think the reason why God wants you to be with him many times is because he wants you to know how beautiful you are. Amen. That you're perfect in his eyes. That he sees all of who you are. He sees the great side of you, but he also sees the ugly side of you. And he still declares an anthem into your soul if you let him that you're beautiful in his eyes. But you gotta wanna be with him. Metro, will you let... God, speak these powerful words into your life today of how beautiful you truly are in his eyes. And will you believe it, not just with your head, but will you begin to believe it in your heart? Because the disciples did, because they persistently prayed, they were able to confront their pain of betrayal, and they actively obeyed their God, meaning that they knew being with him was far greater than just doing for him. You're beautiful. May you know that and may you hear that from your God this morning. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer.